Well, Tim and his friend Barry went camping at Shenango Lake a few summers ago. Tim tells this story. It had been raining, and more rain was in the forecast. But we thought we could beat the odds. After we had set up our tents, I was assigned the duty of gathering firewood. Unfortunately, everything was wet because of the rain. I gathered the driest wood I could find, but it wouldn't burn. Barry was cooking on the Coleman stove, but he wanted a campfire. So we decided I should drive about a mile back to the ranger shack to see if the rangers could point me to where I could buy some firewood. On my way out of the campground, I noticed another campsite from which campers had recently left, and I saw a hint of smoke rising from their campfire. Well, that wood is dry, I said to myself. So I pulled in, grabbed a log by the cool end from the fire, threw it in the back of my truck. I drove the mile or so down to the ranger shack. Then when I stopped at the ranger shack, I noticed an awful smell and saw smoke. Oh no, I thought, the ranger shack is on fire. And then I looked in my rearview mirror, and it wasn't the ranger shack that was on fire. The log in the back of my truck was on fire. As I was driving, the wind had ignited the embers of that log, and it was burning, along with part of the lining of the bed of my truck. I put out the fire quickly, but the melted rubber and the lining of that pickup is still a visible reminder. A reminder of the day when I saw smoke and flames and assumed someone else had a real problem. When in fact, I had the problem. So often as we look in the rearview mirror of our lives, we have this great temptation to think, That somebody else has a problem. Somebody else's life is on fire. But this first part of Romans is teaching us over and over and over again, it's us. It's not them. It's not someone else out there. In fact, it is us. We're the ones. We stand guilty. We are the unrighteous. We deserve God's judgment. Our lives are on fire and we need help to get the fire out. We, we can't do it on our own. We can't will it. We can't achieve it. We're incapable of saving ourselves. Who will help us? Who will save us? We proclaim as Paul did at the end of Romans chapter 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ alone, that can deliver us. Well, let's read together these all-important verses there from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, gearing our hearts and our minds to the truth of God's word and his message for us today. Let's read these words together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Today we're going to look at God's just judgment according to the law for the Jew and the Gentile in Romans 2, 
12 through 24, and God's judgment according to circumcision for the Jew and the Gentile in Romans 2, 24 through 29. So please turn in your scriptures there to Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 12. We'll read God's word, the scripture. It says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the, and the knowledge of truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law... Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Father, now we come with a simple plea that this, your word, from your Holy Spirit, would challenge us and change us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember the overarching goal of this first section of Romans 1, 18 through 320 is to reveal the desperate sinfulness of all of mankind. Paul is logically and comprehensively revealing the universal sinfulness of mankind. First, in chapter 1, he dealt with the sinfulness of the Gentile world, of those who just outright rejected God. And now in chapter 2, he deals with the moralist, the religious, namely the Jewish person who thinks they're in good with God because of all the privileges they have of knowing about God. But Paul is persistently and purposefully piling on the truth of God's judgment for those who trust in religion. 
For he knows from his own life experience how hard it is to break through those who are self-righteous. So he keeps driving home the truth of the universal and personal sinfulness of mankind. He's tearing them down, brick by brick. Not to to bring them down, but to help them grasp the depth of the bad news of their own unrighteousness. In so doing, his hope is, his expectation is, that they will see the truth of the bad news And they will long to grasp in desperation of their souls for the good news, for the gospel. As he tears down the religious facade of the moralist, of the self-righteous, of the religious person, of the faithless Jew, he's tearing us down. He's exposing us and our sin. He's pointing the finger of God's judgment at our hearts. In the first paragraph of chapter 2, Paul exposes the religious that they too have no excuse before God because they're actually doing the very same things that they condemn others for. And not only that, they presumed upon God's kindness, they've assumed upon God's forbearance, they've expected God's patience. Yet instead of God's amazing kindness leading them to repentance, they don't repent. Instead, they store up for themselves the judgment of God, which rightly falls upon them too. They have greatly underestimated the height and the standard of the holy, holy, holiness of our God. And they've greatly underestimated the depth of their own depravity and sinfulness. So often that can be us. So often when we're caught in our own self-righteousness, we've underestimated the height of the righteousness of God and we've underestimated the depth of the condemnation of our own sin. First, in chapter 2, Paul shows their just judgment because of their unrepentant heart. Then, in verses 6 through 11, he exposed their just judgment because of their self-seeking works. And now he's going to show them their just judgment because they've transgressed God's law, because they thought their privilege in knowing about God exempted them from God's judgment. First, he deals with the breaking of God's law, God's commandment. Verse 12, again, is totally inclusive of both Jew and Gentile. Both groups stand judged. It says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That's the Gentiles. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That's the Jews. Here in verses 13 through 15, Paul exposes the reality of God's judgment on the Gentiles, on those who have never been given the law of God, never the direct revelation of God's command. R.C. Sproul summarized these verses this way, and it's very helpful for us. Paul chooses his words carefully here. He isn't saying that the Gentiles who do not have the law, in fact, keep the law, He's saying that they do things required by the law. That's quite different from saying that they keep the law perfectly. Paul has already made it abundantly clear in the first chapter that all pagans are under the judgment of God, and he'll make it even more clear in the third chapter. But pagans who have never heard of the Old Testament do display what is called civil acts of virtue or civic righteousness. We find pagans with enough 
human morality to take care of their children and to restrain from stealing, among other things. They don't obey the whole of the law. They don't love God with all their hearts and minds and souls. But this partial obedience reveals that there is a certain sense in which a law is written in their hearts. Here we have the classic location in the New Testament for the apostolic teaching of some sort of natural law. Every human being has some moral sense, some light of nature by which he is able to distinguish right and wrong. Even the secular philosopher, Immanuel Kant, went to great pains to to prove this point, that there is a sense of rightness in the breast of every human being. Human behavioral patterns, no matter how primitive the culture, bears witness to the fact that man is born with a sense of moral awareness. We all have some built-in understanding of what is right and what is wrong. God gives us the innate or inward knowledge of morality. It is God-given. Paul goes on saying, their conscience also bears witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Paul's not saying that the conscience is this built-in moral sense of what is right and wrong. No, the conscience is not the same thing as moral law, but rather conscience is another dimension that bears witness to the presence of this built-in moral awareness. You see, the Gentiles, the, the whole world, is not without God's law. They're not without a consciousness of God's law, for God's law is written on their hearts. Sproul is pointing out here these two realities in the hearts of all Gentiles and the hearts of all people who were never directly given God's law. There's the light of moral law, which brings a sense of moral awareness, and the conscience, which brings witness to the moral law, sometimes convicting, sometimes accusing. Sproul concludes saying, the apostle is saying here that it doesn't matter whether or not you know the Old Testament law, you are not excused. Whether or not you have read the Ten Commandments, you are exposed to the law of God in some sense. Therefore, the law of God will be the basis for our judgment. Remember back in chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, where Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it known to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So, from the outside, God has made himself known through nature, through his divine attributes, through his eternal power, and from the inside, through the moral law, in their conscience, God has made himself known. So all of mankind, for all of time and all places, is without excuse on that day when God judges the secrets of men's hearts. That's why verse 16 goes for the heart. 
That's why it goes for the inside. That's why it goes after our secrets. The just judgment of God doesn't just come from violating the revealed written law. It's not woodenly only applying to the exact precepts of the Old Testament legal system. No, for Gentile and for Jew, as Paul taught as part of his gospel, for part of the gospel message is that God judges sin. For on that day of judgment, God is going to judge the secrets of our hearts, the motives, the intentions, the attitudes of each and every person, of all of humanity, and the Gentile who has sinned without the law will be found wanting, and the Jew who has sinned under the law will be found wanting. And yes, us, we too, will be found wanting. Verse 16 reveals that God looks at the heart and it gives us another important truth at the end of the verse. Who's the agent of God's judgment? Who is executing the judgment of God? The scripture says, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Jesus is the judge. The judge on that judgment day will be Jesus, the crucified Savior, the risen King, the sin offering, the propitiation for the sins of the world, the Lamb that was slain, He who willingly laid down His life, the perfect sacrifice, He with the nail-scarred hands. Jesus is going to be the judge. John 5.22 says that God has given all judgment to the Son. And in verse 27 it says that God has given Jesus the authority to execute judgment. Because He is the Savior of mankind. He's the Son of Man. Not only is judgment real, but just get the sense of this, it's personal. The one whom you rejected, the one whom you scorned, The one whom you did not want is the very one doing the judging. And for those being saved, the one to whom we cling, the one to whom we love, the one to whom we believe and we follow, the one to whom we worship as our Lord, the one to whom we cry out for salvation, the one who has taken our sin and given us his righteousness, he himself, is the one to receive us and welcome us. That moment will be as real as the very moment we're experiencing right now for each of us. How will you be received by Jesus on that day? Then in verses 17 through 24, Paul goes hard after his fellow Jews. He lays it on them thick, right? He comes at them with both barrels blazing. He calls them out by name, but you call yourself a Jew. Oh, you rely on a law. You boast in God. You approve of what is excellent. You're instructed in the law, and and you're sure that you're a, a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of fools. You're the teacher of children. You have the embodiment 
of knowledge and truth and the law. You're a Jew. You teach others. Do you teach yourself? You preach against stealing. Do you steal? You, you say that you shouldn't commit adultery. Are you committing adultery? You abhor idols, but are you robbing from temples? You boast in the law and dishonor God by breaking the law. Powerful words. Why is, why is Paul being so harsh? Why is he being so strong? I think it's because of his passion to see the Jews to wake up, to see them get saved. He's not condemning them. He's trying to awaken them to the truth. He's trying to break through that hard shell of self-righteousness. Their false reliance on being Jews. Not with the velvet gloves of one who would handle a priceless vase. But with workman's gloves. As one would hose a chisel and a hammer. These is not words of a man sitting in judgment but of man pleading for them to open their eyes to see the reality of their lives, of their heart. Do our words of caution come from judgmentalism? Or do they come from a heart that's pleading? See, please, see the truth. As Paul writes these words, I'm sure his thoughts flash back to himself to his own life, to his own heart. He says of himself in Philippians chapter 3, if anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more, Paul says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I'm the man, he says. I'm the man, look at me. I'm the very one who relied on the law, who boasted in God. I'm the one, the best of the religious Jews. I thought I was the embodiment of God's plan. So much so that I persecuted anyone who would follow this Christ. But can't you see? Can't you see? I was wrong. I was wrong. It's Christ. Paul goes on to say right after those words in Philippians chapter 3, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. The surpassing worth. Was that the value you have? The surpassing worth of knowing. Is it more valuable than anything in your life? The surpassing worth. He is saying, can't you see it, my countrymen? Can't you see it, my brethren? The surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Paul even goes so far in Romans chapter 9 to exclaim that he wished himself cut off from Christ if it could mean the salvation of his fellow Jews. Such was his heart and his passion for their salvation. Paul describes a self-righteous Jew because he knows. 
They rely on the law. They boast in God. They know His will. They approve what's excellent. They, they, they think in their guise to the blind and to fools and to children. They proclaim, I got the law. I got the very embodiment of God's knowledge and truth. And he whaps them upside the head with God's word and says, so much talk, so little walk, so much bravado with no substance. You see, with all of that privilege that they had, their hearts were still far from God, steeped in their self-reliance of their own self-righteousness, captured in what they have, rather than who and whose they were supposed to be. They profess their privilege without actually possessing a real relationship with God. They profess their privilege without actually possessing a real relationship with God. Could that be us? It was all about their status, not their heart. It was all about their outside, not their inside. It was all about their privilege. Look at us. Not their relationship. Yet the facade is crumbling. For as they boast in the law, they're actually dishonoring God by breaking the law. The very privileges that they hold out to honor themselves, they're actually dishonoring the one who gave them these privileges through their sinful hearts and actions. And as they are exposed for their false facade of religious self-righteousness, the name of God is blasphemed. The Gentiles make fun of them, make fun of their God. Their fake religion is unmasked and God is blasphemed. Oh, the finger of God's word as it points to them. Does it point to us? Could it be us too? We have seen such self-righteousness on display. We've all seen it. As so-called Christian leaders have gotten lost in their pride, come crashing down as their sin is exposed for the whole world to see. And the world mocks our God. And the world makes fun of God. And the world blasphemes God because of the sin of His followers. It's happened so often. There's like a running joke in our country and we weep and it breaks our heart as our God is ridiculed. No, none of us would ever make national news of our sin exposed. Oh, none of us would be known throughout the land and, and be exposed in our sin and bring ridicule to God. But could it still be us? Could it still be us in the circles of our lives? Could we be displaying a spiritual facade, relying on the spiritual privileges that God has given to us, our church and our Bible and our Christian heritage and the great knowledge we have of God? but not really being the real deal on the inside and then we get exposed? Could it be us? It could. What would our world say about our God if it's all just a fake facade that gets exposed? Paul relentlessly goes after their heart 
Beloved, God is relentlessly going after our hearts. Evaluate. God is going to evaluate us. Jesus judging the very secrets of our hearts. Beloved, now is the time to go from relying on the externals, relying on the privileges God has given to you, to come to a real, humble, broken understanding of yourself, seeing the depth of your sin, confessing your misplaced trust on your religion, confessing your misplaced trust on your privileges of knowing about God, and repent from your heart, confessing your real trust on Jesus Christ, on knowing Him, and the surpassing worth of knowing him and be known by him. Oh, to be torn down by God so that we can grasp the bad news of our unrighteousness. Oh, to be revived alive by God as we plunge our lives into the good news of the gospel that Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to seek the lost. Jesus came to give his life a ransom for you. And for me. But Paul's not done yet. He has another privilege he needs to topple. He has another self-reliance to expose. After tearing down the false notion that simply having the law made them special and exempt from God's wrath. He now tears down the false notion that simply being circumcised makes them special exempted from God's judgment. They relied upon their heritage for their salvation. I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew by birth. I've got the law. I've got the sign of the covenant of circumcision. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm good. I'm in. My heritage is enough. One wrote, a person who was raised in a Christian home and trained in a Christian environment is not saved by such a heritage, valuable as it is, nor baptism or any other Christian rite in itself possesses or bestows any spiritual benefit apart from two faith held by the person receiving it. No ritual or ceremony has any spiritual value whatsoever. Because you see, in New Testament times, the common Jewish belief was that a person was simply saved by being a circumcised descendant of Abraham through Isaac. It was all about their heritage. And Christ continually said, no, it's about faith. It's about his righteousness. It's about obedience. In verses 25 through 29, Paul so boldly exclaims that, that being a Jew physically is a privilege, but it does not automatically bring salvation. No, a true Jew is and always has been a Jew not from heritage, but from the heart. A true person in a covenant relationship with God is not just one who's merely a Jew in appearance through circumcision, but a true person in a covenant relationship with God is one who is a Jew in their heart, whose heart is committed to God. It's not physical circumcision that matters, but circumcision of the heart. And that truth far supersedes anyone's nationality. For God's not looking at skin color or heredity or or family line or ethnicity. No, God has always and will always look at the heart. Salvation is available equally to all. 
As verse 29 says, a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Not by the letter, not by works, not by law. His praise is not from man, but from God. Beloved, this is not a new teaching. This is not new to the New Testament. This is not new to Paul. Moses taught this in Deuteronomy chapter 10, starting at verse 12. Deuteronomy 10, starting at verse 12, the scripture says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you? What does God want from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep his commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heaven and earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. It's the message of Moses, no longer be stubborn, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. You can't work for it. It's from the heart. A true Jew that is a real covenantal relationship with God has always been from the heart. It's always a matter of the heart. It's always been what the law points to. It's always been what circumcision points to that is of most importance. These Jews appealed to the sign for their salvation. They appealed to a religious symbol for their salvation. There's nothing wrong with the sign. The sign's not bad, but relying on the sign is bad. Not seeing the real significance is bad. Not seeing what the sign is pointing to is really bad. Now, have you ever been to a restaurant? And over the back hallway is a sign that says restrooms, right? Now, the sign is good. The sign is actually very important and very helpful, but the significance of the sign isn't in the sign itself. It's what the sign is pointing to. It's what it means. No one goes to the restroom sign and stops and says, oh, I've made it to the sign. It's all about the sign. The sign is not the reason that the sign is there. It points beyond itself to why it's there. One wrote, if the Jews' possession and knowledge of the law did not exempt them from the judgment of God, neither did their circumcision. To be sure, circumcision was a God-given sign, a seal of his covenant with them. But it was not a magical ceremony or a charm. It did not provide them with permanent insurance cover against the wrath of God. It was no substitute for obedience. It constituted, rather, a commitment to obedience. 
Yet the Jews had almost a superstitious confidence in the saving power of their circumcision. Oh, there goes mankind again, right? Taking what God has given and twisting it for our own ends and purposes. Circumcision has never, can never, and never was given for salvation. The sign is not spiritual magic. It points to the spiritual truth beyond it. How sad to have the sign, but not have the reality. How sad to have the sign, but not have the truth. I've talked to people about the importance about having a real relationship with Christ, to have them respond back to me to talk with me about their baptism. I've been at funerals where I've talked about the importance about having a real, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And people have come up to me afterwards and said, well, at least they were baptized. Beloved, Baptism has never, can never, and never was given for salvation. It's a sign that points to the truth. What's important is the truth, not the sign. One wrote, what Paul writes here about circumcision and being a Jew could also be said about baptism and being a Christian The real Christian, like the real Jew, is one inwardly. And true baptism is like true circumcision is in the heart by the Spirit. It is not the case that the inward and spiritual replaces the outward and physical, but rather that the visible sign derives its importance from the invisible reality to which it bears witness. It is a grave mistake to exalt the sign at the expense of what it signifies. Folks, the visible sign of baptism derives its importance as it symbolizes the invisible reality of what God has already done in a person's heart through salvation, being united with Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. It's a grave mistake, an eternal mistake to exalt the sign at the expense of what it's supposed to mean, to lift up the sign of baptism in the place of actually coming to salvation in Christ alone. Nothing can replace one's need of coming to Christ in repentance and faith. That's the teaching of the Bible from the beginning to the end. No act, not circumcision, not baptism, nothing. So, are you relying on a sign? Are you relying on something that you have done? Are you relying on your privileges? Or are you relying on the truth that the sign points to? Jesus Christ. Faith alone. Through Jesus alone. By grace alone. Is the only way of salvation. R.C. Sproul ends his comments on chapter 2 saying this. Isn't it a fitting climax to the argument of chapter 2, 
What Paul has been driving at all along is this. God is going to look at the heart. We can adorn with all kinds of externals. But if there's no circumcision of the heart, it will be to no avail. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is of the heart by the Holy Spirit. What is salvation? It's a matter of the heart. By the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, not by the letter, not by our deeds, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That's salvation, a matter of our hearts. Let's pray. Father, now we come to you so thankful for your word, so thankful that these, this scripture written all those years ago comes alive to us today to challenge our own wrong thoughts and understandings, to convict us and to teach us, to humble us, to tear us down so that we can see anew and afresh all that you have done, that it's about you, your son. It's a matter of our hearts. Lord, may each one of us in here today confirm right now in our own prayers to you, through the Spirit and by the Spirit, that we are a child of God. Think about it. Pray. Thank the Lord right now for the salvation you've been given. Confirm it. And if you can't, then evaluate and pray and come to him now for salvation. Come talk to me or Pastor Rob or your Christian friend you're sitting with about coming to real faith in Jesus Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen.